Hello and welcome back to Head Right Out, the podcast that is here to encourage you to step out of your comfort zone and do things that scare you on a regular basis. My name is Zoe Langley Wotham. I'm a writer, speaker, midlife adventure seeker. Oh, that rhymes. I'm a teacher, an artist, long distance walker, plus a daughter, a mother and a wife. There are so many things that we all know we are and there's so many more things that we could be. I wonder how many things you've wanted to do but have never quite managed to get your head around doing them because they all feel a bit daunting or a bit big. Perhaps you think a bit too big for you but believe me they're not. Today I have an amazing woman that's come to chat to us and obviously this is all about inspiring you to head out of your comfort zone, do something that scares you and I think that this person is the most ideal person this week to talk to us. Nahala Summers is just an incredible woman that I've been following for years now and we actually had the pleasure of meeting up about 18 months ago and we had a great conversation and she is going to talk to us about her adventures that she's been on and what she does. Hello Nahala! (laughs) (laughs) Wow what an introduction and I oh I hope I meet the criteria of that but thank you so much it's ever so kind of you. Oh, no, I am just delighted that you agreed to come on the pod. So I'm going to read a bio for you, Nahala. This is something that I think just encapsulates who you are, what you do in a nutshell. And then we'll kind of dig down into that a little bit more and just tease out some of the things that we both think are going to be of particular interest to our listeners. So Nahala Summers is a cultural change consultant, award winner, author, public speaker, podcaster and the driving force behind a culture of kindness and 44 rays of sunshine it won the most inspirational book in 2017 her story and how she overcame adversity has been inspiring businesses and people around the world Nahala is the founder of Sunshine People the social movement that inspired her to carry out yearly adventures to highlight the power that kindness has to transform societies She was awarded a Point of Light Award from the Prime Minister for transforming the concept of sponsorship. Nahala cycled 3,000 miles across America, having not owned a bike in 20 years. She walked 500 miles from South to North England, relying only on the kindness of strangers. And in 2020, she made a world record by going 5,007 miles on an elliptico bike through every city in the UK in the middle of a pandemic, whilst also producing the biggest Strava art in England by writing kindness across it. Nahala's unique selling point is that she completes these challenges and asks people to show their support by doing an act of kindness for a stranger, rather than sponsoring money to a charity. As the founder of the CIC Sunshine People, every year she takes on a new challenge and every year she discovers something new about the power that kindness has on people. As an author of several books, including an award-winning book in 2017, Nahala is an inspiring and established speaker. Among the many messages that she delivers, she shares how we can change the chatter in our minds to allow us to achieve anything we dream of, how resilience is built, and when the world gives us lemons, how we can, in fact, make lemonade. How the actions of one can change the world and therefore what we each do 
really does matter. Nahala gives every reader and every person that listens to her the knowledge that they too can do anything they wish to. If she can, they most definitely can. (laughs) Wow. That to me, Nahala, is just, this is what Head Right Out is all about. It's all about resilience. It's all about facing those fears and saying, but if they can do it, so can I. Mm. So where did this start? Are you happy to share some of your background to tell us how Sunshine People and how this facing fears and resilience building started and the culture of kindness? You know, that's the Sunshine People. Yeah, it was really around understanding and this is not meant to sound pressing in any way but it was really understanding my own mortality and the death of my partner who I was living with at the time and when he died very suddenly of a heart attack uh, while he was on a charity cycle ride he wasn't much of a cyclist and uh, he hadn't done loads of training but he had gone out you know it was a work thing And he didn't know if he'd finish it, but he was going to go out and have a go. And yeah, you know, I was dropping him off for a cycle ride. And two hours later, he was calling me, telling me he thought he was having a heart attack. And I think, you know, there'll be listeners here that fully understand that that grief, whether it's a parent or best friend or somebody, you know, it impacts you all very differently. But for me, it impacted me in this understanding that life can change in a moment. And, you know, while we think that we are living our lives to all the things that we want to do, you know, I would say, oh, I'm going to do this at some point. You know, I wanted to foster children. And I would say, I'm going to do that at some point. And I'm going to quit this corporate job that I'm completely tied into, uh, that I've been doing for 15 years. I could do it standing on my head. I don't really get that much enjoyment and I don't feel that it's my purpose in life, but kind of doing it now and I'm just going to keep on doing it. And after Paul died, that changed significantly. And you know, I'm I'm not advocating, you know, wait until somebody dies. I'm definitely advocating taking a look at, am I living the life that I really want to live? And there is this old, you know, saying, oh, if, if you only had one day to live, well, if I only had one day to live, I'd go to the pub with all my mates. You know, that's what I would do. <laughs> but if somebody said you have a year to live, would you be happy in the life that you win right now? It's asking yourself the question, if you had a year to live, that if you were in your current place, would you stay doing that work? Would you stay in the environment and the place that you are? Or would you make a change? And if you would make a change, then you need to make that change right now. Because we just don't know what is around the corner. Mm, that's a powerful message straight out there isn't it and I think there's a lot of people that do get that there's a lot of people that have experienced that moment of questioning their own mortality because of the loss of a loved one and I'm so sorry that you went through that with your partner but you know the life that I am now and I wouldn't have raised 250,000 acts of kindness I wouldn't have met these incredible people I wouldn't have traveled as much as I had. I would have done some traveling, but I mean, I've traveled the world three times over researching about kindness. And so while there are so many times that I 
think I just love to have them back because it was just easy. You know, it was easy to be loved unconditionally by him. At the same time, to do that means that you take away the last 10 years and the purpose that I now have from that side of things. So, yeah, it's a hard one. You can see the joy and the benefit that you have from both sides of of those stories. So, you know, having Mm. Paul and having the life you have now and to actually say, well, sorry, you can have one or the other. To say you can only have one or the other is so hard. But to know that a huge benefit has come from that loss actually must be very reassuring. Yeah, because it's bigger than me. Mm. See, when me and Paul were together, we lived in a little bubble. There was just me and him. There was this unconditional love between us. We didn't do a whole load of things. We just didn't. We just enjoyed each other's company. And it was very easy. And life is not easy now. But now I have a much bigger purpose that's really nothing to do with me. There's a key to happiness from that. When we make our lives about other people, there's a purpose that drives us forward. As we talk about mental health challenges and all the challenges that go on for human development, when we actually realize that our lives are really meant to support each other, and whether that's going out into the community and doing things, whether that's helping somebody across the road, somebody with their shopping, you know, just being part of the community around you, that's the purpose. And really, that drove me down that road after Paul's death. I understand that it's not really about me and all the stuff that I do isn't really about me at all. It's about the rest of the world. And yeah, it gives us great purpose, I think. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So the acts of kindness then, the sponsorship of kindness, Hmm. why did you choose that over sponsorship of financial gain, you know, to help a charity? What was your driving force behind that? You know, when Paul first died, I was in a terrible place. I was obviously crying all the time. I wasn't able to deal with it. I was talking in riddles. I was, you know, I was in a deep state of shock and it got worse. You know, after the funeral, I stopped wanting people to come into the house and I stopped wanting to leave the house. And then it was just spiraling, really. And I would call my mum and she would always be on the end of the phone. It was like she never went out. (laughs) And I would just cry down the phone and she would just listen and she would just be present and say, oh, darling, I know. Because there wasn't anything that you could fix. There was nothing else to do other than listen or say all those very unhelpful things like, oh, well, time's a great healer and all that. Uh, Very unhelpful. If ever you haven't gone through grief and you're trying to help a grieving friend, don't say that. Yeah, I wasn't eating or sleeping or it was, yeah, it was just spiraling out of control, really. So we lived out on the beach in Western Supermare and in Stoke. but had most beautiful sunsets, like just stunning. You know, me and Paul always used to go out on an evening after work. And, and on this one particular day, I decided to go out onto the beach and there was a man on a horse doing a figure of eight backwards. Uh, you know, it was quite something. And he was kind of training the horse and and along this very quiet beach and the water goes right out at Western Supermare. I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just stunning. I love it there. And 
And then uh, a man came up with his dog and asked me about if the horse was mine. And in those moments, you know, of talking to me, I felt this lightness. And where everything in my peripheral vision had been dark, I felt that there was some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And he went off, his phone rang, he had to go. And he just chit-chatted to me about nothing in particular, gave me stories of positivity. And I wasn't suddenly healed from my grief. It did become the catalyst for me starting to change my life. And my mum would say I grieved well. And, And what she meant by that was I talked a lot. You know, if I was to say to anybody, and and I wrote everything down. Mm. So I wrote to Paul every day because I, I had all these things to tell him. And they weren't really very big things. They were like, the boiler's broken. Your car got broken into because we left a sat-nav in it. I'm not sure what to do about something. And so I started to write to him and it became a therapy. And I talked a lot. Yeah, huge tip very easy let's not overcomplicate the solutions to the world and life and all the challenges that we have talking is just a huge thing even if you tell the same story to 10 different friends go and do it because you'll feel a lot better at the end of it so I went through the grieving process and after I met that stranger on the beach it started to become the catalyst and I started to look at people and started to think I went out to the shops and you know, the kindness of somebody helping me to get something from the top shelf. And kindness did become very prevalent in those first months. And I got suggested that I climb Kilimanjaro quite early on. And I thought, well, why not? I'll just do that. I have blind optimism. And I only discovered the term blind optimism while I was writing my latest book, I have it in spades, this kind of, yeah, let's do it. And let's figure it out later on. Because otherwise, if you know too much or you think about it too much, you won't do anything at all. You'll just be paralyzed. I have mind optimism and I don't want to fight it. I'm quite happy with it. And so I did the same with Kilimanjaro. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I raised £14,000 with the help of the company that Paul worked for. And and of course, you know, he only died at 44. And when something like that happens, people donate, don't they? And Mm. uh, so I raised £14,000. And when I called the charity on returning from Kilimanjaro and said, what can we do with this money? They said, oh, no, it's just gone into the big pot. And I really wanted to do something very specific for him. And and so I decided that, you know, this was not our life. This was not who we were and decided that I would start collecting acts of kindness instead. Mm -hmm. And it started off with just friends and family and, and a hobby became a life, really. You know, I can remember the first year I did it, people went, oh, can't I just give you £10? Be so much easier than... (laughs) than having to go out and do an act of kindness I said no you've got to do an act of kindness you know I got a few that first year and and it just rolled on it was really why acts of kindness and yeah so that's where it started yeah and of course with acts of kindness it's a bit like when you're collecting if you've got an interest in penguins for example then everybody buys you penguins related stuff every Christmas and birthday 
well, this is what happened with me with kindness, you know, but it wasn't, it was just all year round. So every meme, I, you know, you get tagged in everything. People gift you books and, you know, oh, you've got to meet this person. They're the kindest person. They want to tell you stories. And so it goes on. And really, I became fascinated by this idea of kindness and how much we were missing it. And so it went on, really. It yeah, sounds like so it snowballed. People, yeah. Yeah, yeah and which is what you need, isn't it? That's what you need to actually get this whole thing off the ground and going. So how many acts of kindness have been donated now? I, I guess that's the right term. That's right. We're at about a quarter of a million now. So the aim is to get a million. We're just connecting with an organisation called Hexy Time, actually, and they add up volunteer hours and really clever idea strongly advise out of just nosiness go and have a look at them but they're very much in the care world social and care world and it's some doctors that founded it so for every volunteer hour that they do we'll be putting that into the one million which is really exciting as well so I'm hopeful that certainly within the next 12 months that we get to or 14 months maybe a blind optimism again probably um two years I would imagine <laughs> <laughs> but that is so exciting. And we can put a link to Hex Time in the in the show notes. So yeah. That's yeah, not a problem. Yeah. And I think actually the, the whole thing about acts of kindness, you've got something that is so tangible, whereas you didn't have that with the donating money to the charity. You didn't have something, did you, that you could say, this is what we have done in memory of Paul, and this is helping his name live on. There wasn't anything there. But now these acts of kindness are so tangible. And not only are they helping other people, I'm a huge believer in that they help us as well. So the people that are donating the acts of kindness, you can't fail to feel good. You feel absolutely wonderful every time mm. you do something for somebody else. I always mm. encourage people to go and volunteer, uh, particularly in schools. They always ask me, you know, how can I go and earn money? How can I go and get a job? It's like, well, don't focus on getting a job now. Go and volunteer first. Get some experience. You'll feel really good. But actually, it will help other people and it will help your CV and yeah, then you'll yeah. get your experience to get your job as well. But yeah, it fills you up and it makes you feel wonderful. It should be prescribed by yeah. doctors in terms of getting involved in community, joining a social group you know, all of that. People also misunderstand me when I talk about kindness, because kindness isn't just about the act of kindness, because people think, oh, I have to buy someone a cup of coffee, take some donuts into work. But that isn't kindness, truly, you know, I might be doing something nice. But kindness is about standing in the shoes of somebody else, mm. and really being present with them. Kindness is not putting your own beliefs and thoughts onto somebody, but listening to theirs and going, mm, yeah, I see that. I see where you are coming from. It's about the gratitude to somebody, but true gratitude, not just a blind thank you, but really being grateful for the people around you, which, of course, has its own impacts on you, you know, connection, courage time, integrity, all of these things are built under the umbrella of kindness. I think when we focus on that as a society, we will change all of the issues that we currently have. And it sounds very bold to say that, but you know, you look at any issue that we have, mental health challenges, environmental challenges within the world, 
political challenges, workplace challenges, anything to do with as simple as bullying. You know, you look at the way that our politicians have a lack of empathy and understanding for the variety of people within society. A lack of kindness is at the heart of all of our problems. And so kindness doesn't even just come down to those, you know, 250,000 acts. People say to me, oh, what can I do? I said, you can just be present for somebody when they really need you. You can just be on the end of the phone when somebody is having a bad time. And that's kindness to just be present. It's really not difficult. Educate yourself on a bigger society. Educate yourself on not just the society that you live, but all of society and the challenges that people have, you know, Mm. from different ethnic minorities to different sexual preferences, different whatever it is, you know, it's so wide now. And And we're allowed in so many ways to be who we want to be. But yes, but understanding. So I wanted to express that about kindness and that's importance, really, and the ease in which we can do it. It's huge. That whole definition of kindness and what you can pull out of that is massive, isn't it? And as you say, it's so important. And I think the biggest thing that comes for me from that is empathy. It's having that empathy for other people and understanding that we all think differently, we have different opinions, we live differently, we have different needs, and people are carrying around different baggage, and we just need to have empathy for that. A culture of kindness and the work that I do in organisations came from this whole idea that I started from all this research that came to me about kindness, you know, I realised it was starting to get more complex, you know, there's a lot of values underpinning kindness, and what that really looked like. And I realised that it was just missing from workplaces. There wasn't one organization that I had worked within that I thought, yeah, you're getting it right. You know, you're bringing all these values in. There were so many organizations that wanted to so badly. You know, they had it in their policy documents. But was it really embedded in the culture? No, it wasn't. What was embedded was blame. It was so evident um, that blame underpinned everything. So I designed a theory from a whole load of research that I did with CEOs who were deemed, you know, the kindest leaders. And from there, we looked at what needed to change. And the thing is, with all of this, we look at stress and anxiety, we look at, you know, all these challenges that we have within ourselves. But when you look at stress and anxiety within workplaces, so often workplaces are trying to put sticky plasters on big problems. They're kind of going, oh, God, you know, we'll put in a mental health first aider and and that will fix it. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying that people shouldn't have mental health first aiders because they should. But organisations will think, oh, that's it. I fixed it. That's the solution. But the solution runs much deeper than that. It's the foundations of the way that we interact. And the only way that we really do that is by bringing kindness in and allowing people to have empathy and and talk freely about themselves and be themselves, you know, without attribution. The organizations, and I use this as a great example, I ask a question to everyone at the beginning of the groups to see what comes from it. And I say, I want you to share something that you've never shared with anyone at work. 
And the amount of people that say, oh, you know, I've got five children or just standard life things about themselves that they aren't sharing within work because mm. when they go into work, they go into, I'm, I'm this person, I'm a brand new person. And, and of course, we must have roles, but to have empathy and to stand in the shoes of somebody else, to be able to really listen, we also have to be vulnerable enough to share of ourselves. And it's hugely important. So kindness and workplaces, kindness is the answer to so many of our challenges, really. That sounds like a great job that you're doing there. So this led then into you creating an annual challenge for yourself where you could go off and test your own resolve, test your resilience, face your fears, and then bring those stories back to these workplaces and to the Sunshine people. I mean, it's all interconnected, isn't it? But you've had four or five challenges now. That'd be right. Yeah, there's a few more, but they were smaller. So I never really documented them. We actually redid the cycle ride that Paul's on, which I don't really talk about. I climbed Snowdon and we'd obviously done Kilimanjaro. I did a walk and I did a cycle ride with one of the foster children with me. And, you know, every year... There were pretty small things until 2018 when I cycled across America and decided, well, just go big or go home now. You know, I'm playing at this and you sit in the wings, don't you go, mm. oh, God, that seems like awfully hard work. You know, I watch all these really incredible people like pull tires along on their back. And I think, wow, that seems big to me. Can I just interrupt there? I'm just thinking about your usual approach that you talked about earlier, your blind optimism. Did that not kick in then when you were thinking, okay, I've I've got to cycle 3,000 miles across America? Was it like, oh my gosh, actually this is huge? And yeah, how did you handle that? So what I was was very busy. I was really busy up until that point and I think what also happens is and I did this across America but you kind of break it down so you go well rather than thinking oh I'm going to cycle across America and you think of this kind of huge thing it just paralyzes you so then I go okay well what do I I need a bike so I can remember borrowing a bike from some I was working out still in the Middle East at this point so that was another reason why I hadn't done big challenges because I was in and out of the corporate world still and I was doing contract work and I had decided while I was out in the Middle East in Dubai I was quitting and I'd taken a couple of months I was retraining doing some coaching work and I borrowed a bike while I was out there that I didn't actually ever ride (laughs) Because I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. I can't remember why. And there was just all sorts of issues. Anyway, I was running a little bit on the beach, you know, hard life. And um, <laughs> I just didn't know what I was getting into. I had no concept because I hadn't cycled. I hadn't cycled with clipping shoes. I had not cycled a road bike before. So all of these things... I didn't really know. And I thought, well, it's okay, because I'll just learn along the way, which you, I can guarantee anyone who says they cut, that is what happens, you just learn. So I went in, and then I came back to the UK. And it was December, I'd already booked the flight. 
big tip for anybody. If you're unsure about something and you're umming and ahhing, just go and book the flight for a period of time and then you will go and do it because it's already booked. It's too late. So you'll find a way to do it. So anyway, I booked the flight for the March, 1st of March. You know, I had two months. I bought the bike six weeks before I was due to go out from Gumtree. It was completely the wrong bike to get. It was not a touring bike. It was a road bike. And the roads out in America are brutal at times. But it was a bike. It pedaled me forwards. You can always think back and say, well, people did this without maps. You know, people did this without all the stuff that you can get nowadays. And so you kind of go with this, well, it will just work out. And and you are just going to propel yourself forwards. We live very cozy lives, right? We've got all these wonderful things around us. But that wasn't always the case. Not that long ago. So you can have very, very little and still survive and still be okay. And the kindness of strangers when you're on these challenges as well will propel you forwards and keep you going. So yeah, blind optimism has followed me. I've been blessed with it, but we can all have it if we choose to. We can all have it for sure. Yeah, that's fabulous to hear that in that, you know, you found a way, you found a way that works for you, that gets you through some of these difficult times or some of through some of these plans <laughs> I say plans loosely the plans that you know that very you need loosely to make. <laughs> very, very loosely I would say yeah it's an idea barely and then I just do it yeah I, I love this theme that's running through now <laughs> loose plans well I have something to ask you I guess now because although I would like to talk about the challenges a bit more I actually would dearly love to talk to you about your new book because by the time this lands in podcast world, your book will have been three days launched. So this was very exciting. Would you like to tell us what it's called and a little bit about where it yes. comes from, what it's about? Share. It's, it's actually named The Accidental Adventurer. Now, this is not because I've had any accidents. It is because I became this kind of accidental adventurer. Year on year, I started doing these things. You know, after I cycled across America, I did the 500-mile walk and then the elliptigo. And and then, just as I'm nearing the end of writing this book, as people may have been able to hear, I don't usually have a lisp within my speech but I do at the moment because I've broken my jaw and I have a lot of metal in my mouth. And so had an accident about four weeks ago as I was training for my latest world record. Uh, that was a 24-hour world record on the elliptigo. So I feel like I tempted fate with the accidental adventure title. Um, <laughs> but it was too late. You stuck with it. But yeah, within the book... It's very much sharing the stories, the incredible people that I met. And it talks about really how we can all achieve whatever we want to, not just in adventuring, but anything that you dream to do, you can do it. You have that capability within you. And I wouldn't say it was a a big rah-rah, you know, this is what you've got to do to do it. But it's very much a storytelling book of that journey of kind of pulling yourself up from the living room floor, really, and saying, Mm -hmm. actually, I need to live. I'm hoping I'm selling it, really. (laughs) But, But yeah, it talks about all the adventures and goes through it. And 
I will say that this has been my hardest challenge. I wrote this book and it was 120,000 words. It was a big old book. And I sent it to Lindsay Duncan, the editor, and she was incredible. She wrote six pages of notes and it was a rewrite, really. And I was sad. You know, I was sad for a while, just just a couple of days. But it's okay. You know, you're sad and then you pick yourself up, right? And you go, do you know, what am I going to do about this? And so I started, she was absolutely right. Every note that she made was absolutely spot on. So I started working my way through the notes and started to change the books. And, you know, we've now got a 60,000 word work that is completely rewritten. And, you know, I'm very proud of it. It's been an incredible labor of love and would not have been the book it is today without Lindsay's support. I'd love to say it's just me, but it's not really. And then Laura came and did final edit. And and actually, all of the Sunshine people, all of the stories, all the people that I've met, I couldn't put them all in the book. But, you know, it, it is for all of those people. And it, it's very much written for the reader. You know, I dedicate the book to the reader because it is written for them and for the Sunshine people that continue to support with their acts of kindness. So, yeah. Mm, this is exciting. It's such an exciting project. And um, yeah, like I say, it was, it was a difficult time as well. But I was fortunate enough to have a pre-launch copy and I'm 65% of my way through. I've been reading it and devouring it and it's got some amazing nuggets in there. I always talk about these pearls of wisdom and these nuggets, but it's just littered with it all the way through. And you think, oh my gosh, yes, I can apply that to my own life. There are moments where, you know, you might be sat in a heap outside a cafe in Northampton having this complete and utter, oh my gosh, you know, I can't do this anymore moment. But then for the reader, yes, we're definitely able to come back to applying that to our things that are going on for us. And yeah, I can see where I could carry on when things are difficult. I could go those extra, was it three miles you had to go? Yeah. There was actually something that I wanted to talk to you about that. It, so it, it's about pushing yourself through. When you reach moments like that moment outside the cafe in Northampton where you're just like no I can't do this how do you pull yourself through it and carry on what do you draw on what do you dig out to get yourself to a place where you can go right in the hala, give yourself a big kick up the butt and, and, and get on and do it what is it what magic I, I, do you have yeah it is about the choice and you may not have gotten quite there yet but a dear friend of mine, Scott, who is really just a go-to person for me. And I was in a bus stop in Leicester and I thought, do you know what? I'd written I'd written Kindness across England, yeah. finished that. I was going to do the last 500 miles in a heart. And anyone that knows me knows I'm not too worried about the accolades, you know, as lovely as they are, but, you know, I love them. But, you know, the world record, it's just a... It's a thing to talk about kindness. And so I was about to do this heart to get the final world record. And I thought, you know, I just, I've had enough. I just don't want to do any more. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. You know, I was 4,500 miles in. The weather was turning. And I sat in this bus stop and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's nobody about. COVID was ramping up. I really was on a time. Time was ticking. My friend, I called my friend at Scott and he said, well, you've got two choices. He said, you either sit there 
and do nothing and go nowhere. Or you take a tiny step forwards and do something to go somewhere. And that was it. You know, that was the summary. And although I got that message from him, you know, in this beautiful way, in this conversation with him, that was really what I took forwards with me throughout all of the challenges in many ways. Because when you're kind of doing it, you say, well, it's a choice now. You're either going to stop and do nothing and let all of that, all of all of where you got to so far, you're going to let it all go, which means that the purpose wasn't strong enough for you. Quite frankly, the purpose wasn't big enough. Or you're going to keep going and you're going to go the extra three miles and maybe you'll take a break for a minute, but you're going to keep going and pushing forwards. And so for me, it was all about that. It was always... I didn't really have a choice either. I sat there outside that cafe in Northampton and did nothing because I couldn't get a lift. There wasn't those options to do that. So yeah, it was uh, a, it's kind of, you have to go and do something. I I love that. It's the tiny step forward. You, I can either do nothing or you take a tiny step forward. And yeah, that is so relatable to life, isn't it? Yeah. I also liked in the book that you suggested that there are times where people will give you ideas about things to go and do challenges to go and do and that somehow you're able to allow them to live through your adventures because there are people that simply can't go and do what you are doing but I'm wondering is is there anything that anybody has suggested to you to do that you've actually thought there's no way (laughs) there's absolutely no way on this earth I'm doing that do you know no not yet So the only thing that I wouldn't do is bungee jump, actually. that's But nobody suggested that. It's not really quite the challenge that people are looking for. But yeah, the challenges, they get more interesting. They change and adapt. And I think, again, you know, it's talking to people. It's this communication with people. We can get very wrapped up into our phones, into communicating through messenger, and that doesn't develop growth or ideas. And so for me, it's definitely about getting jumping on the phone, talking to friends. Oh, I've had an idea. And then people will say, oh, you should do this and whatever it is. And so it tends to develop into something. And then, of course, usually I've got these very lofty ideas of what's going to happen, you know, very huge things. Yeah, they normally scale back a little bit in reality. (laughs) But it's okay because, you know, you keep moving, right? You keep taking steps forward. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, everyone's going to go off and do these ridiculous things completely unprepared. And because, you know, if we were all doing that, it would be quite bonkers but people are living their own adventures in one way or another and they're doing their own things and they're leaving their mark whether that's through a garden plot you know my dad makes such an impact with his bit of land and you know small holding and we're all doing our own adventures and our own journeys and it's just deciding what you want to do and making that purpose so that it feels enough to propel you forward so that it continues to go those mm. extra three miles um, yeah propels you forward and and in doing that that then makes you more resilient to cope with the next stage for somebody choosing to go and work on a piece of land either to buy it or to rent it 
and then to work on that piece of land and use it as a small holding for some people that would be a massive adventure and yeah. well out of the comfort zone so it's just choosing that element of your life that is going to push yourself out of your comfort zone and create new experiences for yourself yeah I think that's important yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, these things take years sometimes to develop and some things that people do take a short amount of time, but it's about really doing things that you just enjoy and then kind of focusing and developing on that. So yeah, no. Yeah. And actually, I'm really pleased you said that because I was just about to ask you, what do you fear? So if you haven't found anything that people have suggested to you to do yet that's been a bit out of your comfort zone are there things that you do fear and I wanted to add to that not because I'm some kind of sadistic person but I just I think that we can enjoy things that scare us and we can benefit from things that scare us so I just wanted to add that as in a in as a sort of I wanted to add that in as an aside (laughs) yeah so what do you fear I will say fear and things going wrong I I just want to touch on both those Mm. things so fear comes from something that we think might happen usually you know unless we've literally we're stood in front of a saber-toothed tiger and then that's natural fear because we fear for our life but most of the fear that we experience is because we try to predict what might happen going forwards I have an innate knowledge as we all can, in fact, that when things go wrong, we actually have this ability to be stronger at the back of it. So when things don't go right for me, I think that's great. I'm happy with that. It's a pain right now, but I know that it's not what comes to me will come to me for the right reasons. And I just have to go and find another route to achieve the same target. That's a mindset. That's just a thought process that I've adopted over time. I've started to realize I embrace when things go wrong now, and I'm grateful for them. I don't wish them upon myself. I don't want them all the time. But I'm like, this is great, because I know that I'm going to come out stronger off the back of it. So we have this ability to allow things to go wrong, but also that reduces our fear. Because we don't then start predicting what all the things that could go wrong. Because you've already got this mindset where you're going, it's okay when things go wrong. It's okay to fail at something. It's okay, well, I say fail, it's not quite the right word, but for things to fall apart and for us to pick ourselves up and start again because we're going to feel so much better for it. And also, again, when we try things that we've never tried before, We don't actually know the fear that we need to face. Mm. So, you know, next year, the aim is to be in New Zealand from north to south New Zealand. I will not be Googling all the things that could happen or the animals that I could encounter while I'm camping out. I'm not going to do that because (laughs) I will project that and I'll be thinking, oh, my God, you know, I can't do that. So... That's around not thinking too much into the future and when our minds do that to to really change it. And we have the ability to do that if we want to. Gosh, definitely. Yes. And I can see myself. I am that person who will Google 
what could happen to me, what I might meet. I overanalyze everything. And so therefore, I'm afraid of the things that I'm about to go and do before I've even launched myself into doing them, which is why, you know, Head Right Out began, I guess. It was as much a, a platform to help other women as it is to help me all the other way around. It's definitely something that I need to work on. I've got to stop overanalyzing because that's where my fear comes in. And I know that. And gosh, what you've said has just gone, wakey, wakey, Zoe. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) It's interesting. I did a talk. So this woman asked me when I was doing this talk at the Q&A at the end and said to me, you know, what do we do about the conversations that are going on in my head about, you know, I'm not good enough. And first of all, I talked about the positive affirmations, of course, hugely important. But it's also about, you know, when we want to keep fit, when we want to keep our bodies fit, we go to the gym and we'll go every day. We might go for a walk or we go for a run and we know that we have to keep our bodies fit. But so often with our minds, we don't do the regular exercise that we need to be able to get rid of those fears to remove any procrastination we might have and to work on those things, to work on self-belief, I am enough, and to repeat that and to know that and to feel it and to not chase down toxic environments, hoping to be liked and loved and, and focus on the things that do us well. So, yeah, there's a huge thing around training the brain you know, we can train our bodies, but we need to train our brains. And it was something really that came out from the adventures on the importance of that, because it didn't matter that I hadn't trained, actually. It didn't matter that I hadn't trained on my bike. It didn't matter that I couldn't drink from water bottle while I was cycling along, because I learned it. I learned yeah. it as I went along. But what I couldn't do was train my brain. And that was the important thing. Yeah, that is such a positive take home really from this, because it's not just about the fear. It's not just about how you deal with fear. That training your brain is also tackling my other big issue, which is imposter syndrome. And yeah, Mm. but everything that you have just said there applies to me working out how I'm going to climb up that ladder because I'm, you know, I'm afraid of heights, but it's also going to help me and probably thousands of other women out there as well. It's going to help us deal with the imposter syndrome and telling ourselves that we are enough. And yeah, it's massive. Just thank you. Thank you, Nahala. Well, we're coming to the end of this amazing conversation. And there's just so much, so much in here. And it always takes me a while to process a conversation like this with people that I, you know, I'm going to go away today and yeah, really think and reflect on what you've said because I take home those messages as well. I absorb them and I use them, and yeah, hopefully it's all going to lead into bigger and better things. So I would like to know: Has there been a head right out moment for you, Nahala? This is something I'm collecting from each of my guests on head right out. Something where you perhaps didn't think you were capable, but you pushed yourself well out of your comfort zone and actually benefited from it as a result. Thousands, thousands of head right out moments. That moment sat in that bus stop with Scott thinking, yeah, I'm ready to give up. And, you know, for me, the head right out is so much about 
training the brain is about stepping out and it doesn't mean that everyone now needs to climb mountains or do all these crazy things but it's about that I am enough getting out of our heads that will spiral us into this place that's limiting to our own development and all that we can deliver in the world all those things that we can do for other people it stops us from doing all those things because we think oh I'm not enough and we worry about oh what will that person think or you know all of those things and it's coming out of that space and I think that's the turning moment that's the head right out moment to change that chatter that's in our heads Oh, and that chatter can be so noisy, can't it? So noisy. <laughs> so noisy. Yeah, it's just learning to turn it off. Well, yeah. Nahala, thank you so much. This has been just massive, just so, so powerful for me. And would you like to share where people can find out more about you and follow you on social media and find out, obviously, the big one, where they can buy your new book? Yeah, it's very exciting. They can come and see me at www.nahalasummers.com. And that's N-A-H-L-A and summers like the season with an S on the end. And you can buy the books through there, but you can also, you will be able to, on the 1st of November, go into any bookstore and ask them to order your book, which I'm very excited by. Um, And the more people that do that, the better, because then bookshops become more aware of the book. So, yeah, you'll be able to go into the bookshops. You will be able to do Amazon as well and all of those kind of online stores. But, you know, we want to support those independent bookshops for sure. I would love for people to go out and purchase it in the independence more than anything else, taking it back to them. So all of those things, Instagram, it's got TikTok. And of course, there's Sunshine People. But when you go to nahalasummers.com, you can find out about the Sunshine People and about a culture of kindness. So if you're looking to make kindness within workplaces, you can go to a culture of kindness and kindness within society is the Sunshine People. So, you know, uh, we're doing some stuff in schools with Sunshine People now and all sorts of great things. And of course, got the workplace stuff that do lots of free stuff as well as the consultancy. So yeah, do take a look and see what works for you. Well, thank you, Nahala. This has been fantastic. I wish you absolutely 150% luck with your book. I hope it it smashes into the number one spot. That's what you need. And best of luck. Thank you so much for coming on Head Right Now. Oh, thank you so much. Love what you're doing, Zoe. Big fan. And hopefully I'll see you soon. That was such an amazing conversation with Nahala. I loved how she talked of how the kindness of others has impacted on her and how the kindness that we can give back to society, to our friends, to our communities also can have such a huge impact. How Nahala experienced that catalyst of kindness after a period of grief. And I loved her explanation of blind optimism. I don't think I'm guilty of that. I mean, I can be optimistic, but I don't think I have blind optimism because I don't just plow on into something without checking it out fully first. There are huge messages delivered there. And I know what she's saying about how we can potentially change our world and change our culture with acts of kindness. 
many, many, many simple acts of kindness can go a long way to changing worlds, countries, problems. I actually know how great being kind to somebody can make you feel as well. And just last week, I was down in Cornwall for a couple of days and I helped an old lady at Giva Mine. It's not far from St. Just, near Land's End. It was blowing an absolute hooli. And we had reached the mine after having a few miles walk along the coast and back again. And this lady in her 80s, very small, frail lady with a bag and a key in her hand, was standing hunched over, leaning against a wall, facing a car that was probably just five meters away. I went over to her and asked her if she was okay. And she said, no, I'm trying to get to my car. But she was frightened of being blown over. And I said, would you like to take my arm? She said, yes, please. So she took my arm and I guided her over to the car and then she couldn't open the car. She didn't know which button to press. So I helped her with that too and waited until she'd got herself settled in there and showed her which button so that if the car locked itself, she would be able to open it for her family that were coming back a little bit later. And just in that few minutes of helping somebody else, it made me feel really good too. Not out of a selfish way, but just because I had taken the time to help somebody else who was in need. Anyway, so go and check out Nahala on her socials. I have put all of the links to nahalasummers.com and Instagram and Facebook. I've put it all in the show notes. And don't forget to go and order her new book from your local bookshop, The Accidental Adventurer. You are going to love it. Okay, so I have got some exciting news to share with you. A couple of years ago, I did my 100 scary days. And my 100th scary day was always going to be a skydive. And it's all bought and paid for. I paid for it myself. And it got cancelled twice due to bad weather conditions. And then it couldn't happen because of the pandemic. And then I moved up to Wales. And then we've had other family issues that we've been dealing with. So it didn't get rebooked. But last week... I have rebooked it and it is happening on the 12th of November with Go Skydive. I am so, so excited, but also a bit scared. (laughs) I am just going to take it as it comes. I'm trying to blot out any feelings of how I'm going to feel when I'm standing in that airplane and we're about to jump. Mm. But it is going to be fabulous, I'm sure. It's going to be a challenge episode. Uh, I'm going to use it for the podcast. Yes, there is a video happening as well and photographs, so it will be on the social media too. Now, bearing all of this in mind, I did mention in my first solo episode that I was looking for a name to call these challenge episodes. I'm still looking for a name. I have had some suggestions which are on my my sheet of paper to be considered. But if you have any clever ideas about what you think I should call these episodes where I head out of my comfort zone doing scary stuff and I record it and edit it and deliver it back to you as an outside episode, please come back to me with your suggestions because I would love to finally give it a name. Okay, this week's Head Right Out moment, it's a lovely, lovely Head Right Out moment that's been sent to me by Kirsty Gwynne Jones, all the way from South Australia. So she says, I'd like to share with you my bikepacking trip around the York Peninsula in South Australia. 
I rode this almost 500 kilometer track called the Walk the York, which has both a walking and cycling version. And I did it in 2018. I planned ahead, I mean, a day or two before and booked basic accommodation for four nights. My husband, Will, and our children dropped me off in Munta the night before I headed off. I remember Will giving me a lesson on bike mechanics before they left. I was riding my son's Trek mountain bike. I really didn't know what I was doing, and I only carried a small backpack with a change of clothes, spare tyre tubes, some tools, a few snacks, there aren't many shops on the route, and water, along with a litre of water on my bike. On day one, I headed off at sunrise, thinking that that would give me enough time to ride the 120 or so kilometres I thought I'd be covering that day before sunset. Not far into the day, I was on very sandy tracks when I followed the signs onto a beach. I knew that was wrong, but it wasn't too hard to ride on, so I continued on riding on the beach for quite a few kilometres, and eventually I rejoined the trail. I remember I could hear lovely native bird songs all day. There was some really tough riding or not riding, where I continually had to get off my bike and push it through the super soft sand. That became the theme of the day. I met a lovely retired English couple camping near the beach and shared a coffee with them. There was lots of beautiful scenery and sand dunes, salt bush and occasional sea views. The hours disappeared and I found myself riding in the dark. Luckily, I had bike lights. I rang the owner of the cabin I was heading to at Port Turton because I realised I wasn't going to make it there in time for the pub meal I'd been planning on. He kindly organised a frozen pizza for me instead. My watch ran out of power that night, but I recorded more than 116 kilometres before that happened, and there was at least five kilometres after. I was tired, but full of a sense of achievement. The next day I headed off early again and remembered the beautiful light on the rocky corrugated tracks. My back was really aching from the weight of the backpack, so I took out the heaviest things, the spare thorn-proof tubes, and tied them around the bike frame. Then I secured them with a shopping bag. This must have looked crazy, but it helped my back, so I didn't really care. I recorded this day on Strava as some gnarly tracks and beautiful sights. Stunning coastline and beaches were the theme of this day. A few sandy spots and lots of sunshine. I remember lots of animals too, cattle and sheep in paddocks, but heaps of roos also. The Corny Point Lighthouse was a highlight, as were the beach views along the rough, rocky roads after. My back ached when I had a patch of bitumen riding, and I remember seeing a cloudy ring around the sun and wondering if that meant rain. I was excited to reach the beautiful Inns National Park that I always love visiting. Of course, there were loads of roos and even a few emus to keep me company. Again, it got dark quickly, and as I headed closer to Marion Bay, my front light failed because I'd forgotten to turn it off soon enough earlier in the day. I used my red flashing light on the front of the bike to alert the few cars on the road, but it didn't help me see very far. This time, I wasn't too late for that pub meal, and it was awesome. I'd covered more than 124 kilometres. The third day began along another corrugated white, rocky road. I ran into the lovely surfy owner of the cabin that I'd stayed in the night before on a remote bit of road and was initially shocked when he knew my name. Having spoken on the phone, he said in a kindly way, there's no other mad females out here riding, so I knew it had to be you. The morning went on forever and the scenery wasn't that exciting. Until that point, I'd been filling up with water at the track water tanks, but the few I passed were empty. 
I realised it was likely to be 70 kilometres before I could refill with no towns until Edithburgh. So I was careful with my water. There was a crazy section where I was riding through Spinifex and I cursed whoever thought it was rideable but kept going anyway. Then I found the most stunning cliffs surrounded beaches and felt I'd discovered another great ocean road, but with the roughest road ever. It was windy and the low bushes had that awkward lean often seen on clifftops. I was in heaven with views near Truebridge Lighthouse until I nearly fell off in a crazily corrugated downhill. But I stayed on a high as I cycled through a narrow, grey, sanded bush section, hoping not to see a snake. Then I was under the creepy shadows of the wind turbines and there was smoke in the distance. I was hoping it wasn't a bushfire. Suddenly, I popped out onto a gravel trail with lovely mosaics on rocks every 200 metres or so. I stopped to admire and photograph a few, but was too hungry and thirsty to stop for very long. I remember the juiciness of the steak sandwich I had before heading off toward Port Vincent. Again, I saw the beautiful light of the sun on the stubble. It was April and autumn, and lots of lovely old ruins of early farmhouses. I arrived after dark and decided the banana bread I'd bought at lunchtime would do for dinner. After more than 133 kilometres, I was exhausted, but so fulfilled, tightening my Strava record of the day, awesomeness. A pink sunrise again over another jetty started the day, and I was off along some soft dirt tracks through the bush. I fell once, but not heavily. My bum was very sore, and I wrapped the bandages from my first aid kit around my seat to soften the impact of sitting. I loved riding past the gigantic silos at Ardrossan and past some pink salt lakes. The crusty sand that my tyres sunk into as I neared Port Wakefield was not so much fun and I had to use the mantra, the body achieves what the mind believes, to push through. I finished the day and met Will having ridden a total of 477 kilometres. I was so tired, sun-weary but completely ecstatic that I have ridden the walk the York on my own. I learned so much about persevering and how to prepare for my next bikepacking trip. Wow, Kirsty, that is just such a beautifully written head right out moment. And how incredible that you got to do that on your own and that your husband supported you by taking you there. And you know, so often when we have younger children, that rely on us, that, you know, are still dependent on us. We don't feel like we have the opportunity or the permission even to be able to go off and do that. But having that support just is so important, that backup from your family. Kirsty did this and made her adventure such a memorable time. And she drew on so many different skills and no doubt had a range of different emotions and feelings. You know, I could feel it was going up and down, up and down all the way through the frustration and the elation and, you know, even coping with the boring bits. Those boring bits are not always that easy and can really test your level of endurance. So you can check Kirsty out on Instagram. Her account is krunssouthoz. Now I'm going to spell that out for you because it's not actually how it looks. It looks like krunssouthoz. <laughs> so it's K-R-U-N-S-S-O-U-T-H-A-U-S. And I will put the link in the show notes so you can go and check out Kirsty Gwynne-Jones. 
on Instagram. Her photos are fab. She lives a really active lifestyle. And yes, I would thoroughly recommend going and following her. So thank you, Kirsty. Okay, that's it from me for this week. We have got an amazing episode next week with Ursula Martin, who is otherwise known as One Woman Walks. She has completed an incredible five and a half thousand mile journey across Europe recently. So I will be chatting with Ursula. Until then, have an amazing week. Get out there and do something that scares you. Test your resilience. Plan to do something that's going to help you head out of your comfort zone. Keep that head right and healthy. Doing things that test you and inspire you in your outside space. Head right out hugs to you all. Mwah.